Welcome into Searching for San Antonio, part of the San Antonio Podcast Network. This series explores the Alamo City by showcasing small businesses, nonprofit organizations, and some of the wonderful people that make San Antonio what it is. Join in as we search for the true meaning of being a San Antonian. Before we get started on this episode, I want to remind listeners to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Additionally, be sure to follow and like the podcast on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and of course, my favorite, Twitter, at Network. That's at S-A, as in San Antonio, pod as in podcast, network. Thank you all for joining me on another episode of Searching for San Antonio. This week, I'm going to be featuring Child Advocates San Antonio, a.k.a. CASA, and I'll be sitting down with their president and CEO, Angela White. The mission of CASA is to recruit, train, and supervise court-appointed volunteer advocates who provide constancy for abused and neglected children and youth while advocating for services and placement in safe and permanent homes. After the CASA organization took shape in Washington in 1977, numerous other CASA organizations began to rise around the country. The Dallas CASA was one of the first to sprout up in Texas in 1979, and that's where their founders... Eleanor Forlan and Betty Zinn learned how to run their own CASA organization. In 1984, the National Council of Jewish Women in San Antonio, led by Eleanor and Betty, founded Child Advocates San Antonio and just used the same acronym, CASA. In fact, you'll hear Angela refer to CASA as both Child Advocates San Antonio as well as court-appointed special advocates. They realized at the time that the foster children of Bear County desperately needed community volunteers. Like I mentioned earlier, the two were already trained at the Dallas Casa, and so after a lot of work and meetings at kitchen tables, they started out with just 13 volunteers of their own here in San Antonio and were assigned their first case that February again in 1984. I'm really excited to get to my interview with Angela, but before I do, I want to remind the listeners that this episode is brought to you by Live from the Southside. Life on the Southside is a Latina-owned online and print publication that helps residents and visitors find things to do on the south side of San Antonio and throughout Texas. Their goal is to improve and expand community relationships through promoting positive stories, interesting people, and businesses in the community. You can visit their website at southsidesanantonio.com, which is also where you can order the Live from the Southside magazine. You can also order your copy of the magazine on Amazon or simply subscribe to the newsletter to receive your online edition. Lastly, you can follow them at SouthsideSATX on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Huge thank you to April Monterosa and Life from the Southside for supporting this podcast. Listeners, we're going to take a quick ad break and I'll be right back with my interview with Angela White from Casa. This is what we're made of. The businesses that line our streets and the customers that make them flourish. As a business owner, this is your community, your members, your regulars, your neighbors. Your business is unique, so are your customers. No matter who you need to reach, Spectrum Reach is here to help you connect with the right message on every screen. Visit SpectrumReach.com to connect with a local advertising expert. That's SpectrumReach.com. Welcome back into Searching for San Antonio. Like I mentioned earlier, I have Angela White, President and CEO of Child Advocate San Antonio, better known as CASA. Angela is originally from the United Kingdom, 
came to Texas in 2007, and eventually moved here to San Antonio in 2012. The majority of her career has been in the corporate world and ranges from finance positions to major IT implementation positions. Before taking on her new role at CASA, she was the chief operating officer at Chosen Care, a nonprofit organization here in the Alamo City that helps children heal from the trauma of abuse and neglect by strengthening their families via telehealth. So without further ado, here is my interview with Angela White. Well, thank you, Angela, for joining me on Searching for San Antonio. I'm so glad to be here. It's very rare that I get to record <laughs> in person. I haven't done much of those. A lot of it's been via Zoom, but I'm excited to be here at CASA. So how are um, you doing? I'm great, thank you. And thank you for coming out and asking us to be on your show today. I appreciate you. Of course, you. of course. And I've, I've enjoyed the, the walk around and the tour around the facility here. I hear that it's fairly new, right? Yeah, September 19 and then COVID. And we're about to remodel. So it's much more friendly for children and their advocates to come here. I think tell the listeners and tell me, how did you get into the nonprofit world? You know, I'm sure this isn't your first gig, right? You are the CEO. So kind of tell us the backstory. How did you get to this point? Well, as you can probably tell, I'm not from here. So in the UK, since my early 20s, I volunteered primarily for women and children, but was in the corporate universe and um, heavy manufacturing and chemical industries that people did not expect. Um, but when I came to San Antonio about 10 years ago now, a little less, I really wanted to change direction and get into the nonprofit world and bring whatever I'd learned in the corporate universe into that space but also all the volunteer work I'd done. I, I didn't want to volunteer anymore. I wanted it to be the full-time <laughs> yeah. job that I did. And so actually my first gig in nonprofit was as a CEO. Um, oh, wow. As Alpha Home. Yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise to me too. <laughs> so of Alpha Home. And then I knew though child welfare was my thing. So I went to Chosen for a little bit as their COO. And then have been absolutely blessed now to be at CASA. Um, it is my dream job. There is no doubt. And everybody who knows me is like, it's the perfect job. So I'm delighted. So speaking of CASA, uh, can you tell the listeners and explain to them a little bit about CASA? How did it come about and what what's the mission here? Okay, so we are Child Advocates San Antonio. We are Court Appointed Special Advocates. So our name has two meanings, which is helpful, I think. We work alongside the courts. Children are... Children, young people, if they're in the foster care system at all, and certainly when they're in temporary managing conservatorship, which means CPS has them and we're still looking to place them back with family or in um, a placement that is necessary and useful for the person, the young people involved, that we are involved as our volunteer advocates. So Judge Akai is an amazing judge in the city, and the children's courts will ask for a casa when the children come into their courtroom. We train our volunteers and then they become true advocates and they work alongside the children to make sure the children are getting all the services they need. We kind of stand alongside the child in the centre and then all the services, all the placements, everything that child needs, including working with their biological families and placements, and the CASA advocate will do with them. Now, why is the organization important? And I guess the way you can answer that is, what if CASA wasn't around? I mean, what would be happening with these children? Basically, the burden would fall all on CPS, on Child Protective Services. Their caseworkers work so hard, and they can have up to 40 or 60 children each to be caring for. With child advocates, we limit 
as far as possible the number of children our advocates have and the maximum is around 15 usually each advocate will have about two children oh wow so, so it's not like a one-to-one well or not the, all the time not all the time but the reason it's more than one is because these are siblings Got these it. are brothers and sisters that need somebody if a sister is placed in one place and a brother is in another that's why it's usually more than one so we can keep those children connected and together as well so it's important because nobody else does that we're brought in by the court system we work with these children we work very hand in glove with cps but the absolute attention we can give to the children our advocates give to the children nobody else could do that and these children are the children that need that love and that care more than most and when I was looking up data, and I don't know if, if data is available for 2021, but uh, something I had seen, and I believe it was on a episode of KSAT Explains, mm-hmm. and they were talking about just in general, uh, CPS and the foster care system, they had mentioned that the removal rate in 2020 was at its highest here in Bear County, and that the number of children in the foster care system is the highest here, I think in comparison to other counties around Texas. So it seems like CPS, like you mentioned earlier, their workload is is just up to the extreme, you know, and it seems like CASA is there to to really help. What leads up to a a child being placed in in foster care? You know, kind of take us through, is it just one report? Is it a few reports that are filed? What kind of leads to that child being placed in foster care? It varies, honestly. Um, It can be several reports. There can be hotline reports. There can be you know, somebody sees a child that they haven't seen for a while and they're covered in bruises. It can be somebody going to the hospital. It can, and now with COVID and the children going back to school, there will be earlier reports of incidents as well. Oftentimes it's neglect and not abuse. The majority of times it's neglect and not abuse. I do want to go back to though Bear County having the highest number of children reporting rates. The other way to look at that is because the people in Bear County care so much, they're reporting the incidents. And I don't know in Houston, Austin, Dallas, where they also have high numbers, if they see that as the case. But here, I really do believe that people are seeing something and saying something. And that's phenomenal. So even though the numbers are high, that may mean we have better reporting structures in place. That's a good point. So it's a different way to look at that number And I would rather see a child earlier than not see a child at all and the outcome that can lead to. So is it other family members? Is it teachers? Who who are making these initial reports? Kind of going back to a child leading up to them being placed in the foster care system, it's usually teachers? Yes, teachers, because they're seeing the children regularly and they, they know the behaviors of the children and if those behaviors are changing. And that can also lead to more investigation of what is going on at home for that child. Um, Of course, we've not had teachers for the last maybe 18 months now, and the kids are just going back. So we expect the number of reports to be going up. That does not necessarily mean the number of removals will go up. We think it's going to. Some of this, though, has been negated by the Family Prevention Services Act, which is coming into play in October 21. And what that means is we're trying very hard to keep children in homes when it's safe to do so, and CPS are by providing wraparound care to the family in their home. The system is changing. It needs to Mm -hmm. um, in many ways, but the system is changing to allow that to take place as well. 
But to your original question, teachers are a big one, family members, neighbours, um, if they're noting something different about the child or hearing things um, at night, if there's arguments, things like that. A lot of apartment complexes, for instance. Right. But teachers are really key issue of early reporting. With COVID, what we've seen is later reporting when it's done at the hospital itself in emergency rooms. A minute ago, you mentioned that the majority of the cases involve neglect, not abuse. And yes. I think the abuse, and you probably know this, gets reported out there more often. You know, the general public thinks of children in foster care as being abused when, like you mentioned, a lot of cases, it's rather neglect. Yes. What is the difference? What is the main difference? Because I think for some people, they think of neglect as a form of abuse. What is the real difference when you say that there's more neglect than there is abuse? Okay, so let me address that first. Neglect is a form of abuse. So I'll state that clearly. Abuse is formed under physical and mental intentional abusive acts. Neglect oftentimes is that the mom may be on her own and has to work two or three jobs. So the children are not being supervised well in the home. It can be a poverty issue. So there's not enough food in the home. The children don't have the clothes they need. They may not be going to school because they can't get them to school. So that's a neglectful issue. Now, if you look at that as abusive because the child is not being educated, there's an argument to be made. But the difficulty is when it's a poverty situation Mm-hmm. that's leading to neglectful supervision or not having enough food or things like that and people are proud and don't want to ask for help right that becomes Absolutely. very difficult and we shouldn't be penalizing children and their parents for a poverty concern right because they're trying to they're but, trying to provide for the family absolutely they are and they're trying in all the best ways they know how right. and they're proud and they don't want to reach out for help you know there's a lot of brilliant nonprofits in this city but they don't want to reach out. And I think when we get to provide wraparound care and wraparound services, that becomes an easier position to address and hopefully will start to alleviate the number of children coming into the system. Earlier, you alluded a little bit to the COVID situation. We were mentioning how people were in uh, virtual learning for a while, and yes. now the teachers are finally getting to see some of the children uh, in person. You know, we I talked about the data earlier from 2020, but did you see a big change, whether for good or for bad, during COVID in terms of the system? What we have seen is more abuse cases because they're being reported to hospitals. Mm-hmm. We're also seeing the length of time a child is in care and in the system extend. And that's been due to illness. It's been due to the transition of going onto Zoom court, for instance. And it's been due to sometimes the lawyers being sick and all, a whole host of things have gone on. What that meant is we've not been able to serve as many children in the past year because the court cases extend. Mm-hmm. So you're not being able to use your advocates on the secondary court case. And then we have the intricacy of higher standards being required by placement agencies. And so we've lost beds as well. So that's extending time where kids are in different places and sometimes out of state, which sometimes can extend the court case time. So it's a very intricate subject, honestly. There's a lot of things playing into it. Do you consider the foster care system to be broken? Because we hear that a lot. The yeah, public is being fed that a lot, right? And that's all—that's the only experience I can bring is what I what I get fed by the media, by social media, what the stories that come out. But someone who's in contact with the system, right? I mean, do you feel that? 
It could certainly do better. I think that's a big question. I think broken is a big word. It's not completely broken. There are children still coming through the system, still being fine, you know, being able to function, still being reunified, still being adopted. I think it's in crisis right now. And I think it's changed over the years. And I think public awareness and reporting, which is why I think the numbers in Bear are influenced by people that are aware and then report, is really worthy of note. Also, the burden on child protective services and the turnover rates there, because of the burnout, I'm not being disrespectful of any of that team, they work really hard. But that can be difficult because there's constant swapping for these children of their CPS worker or their doctor or their school. And again, you asked me before why CASA is important. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the gaps that we fill as well. We stand in that gap of all that constant change to ensure the child has at least one person. That is not to say that mom and dad or wider family members are still not working with this child. They're just in a different role to play at this time in that child's life. But do I think we're in crisis? Yes. Do I think it can be improved? Yes. Now, I want to know more about uh, the advocates, of -hmm. course. Um, We're here to talk about CASA. They are awesome. Uh, So what is that like for an advocate? I mean, are you going out and prospecting, I guess you could say, for these advocates? Do they come to you? What is that process like in in onboarding them, I guess you could say? Okay, so we do both, frankly. So a lot of our advocates come through word of mouth from other advocates, so Mm -hmm. that's fantastic. We do also go out into the community and engage people who wish to be um, volunteer advocates for us. Um, I was an advocate for five years in Houston, so I speak from experience. (laughs) It's a unique advocacy experience, unique volunteer experience. You get to go to court and make a difference in the system for these child's lives. You can be a mentor to them one minute and taking them a birthday cake, and the next week you're standing up in front of our children's court judges and defining if that child can go home or not. The judge makes a final decision, really important to note, they make the final decision, but they're often reaching out to CASA to see what we have to say. Opportunities like that, as a volunteer, are very few and far between. The thing I talk about most from my advocacy experience is you do it initially because you want to support the kids, and you're doing it for the young people around us, and it's a great thing to do. The more cases you do, the more you realise where your growth is. It is such a reciprocal thing, the, the joy of knowing that you know you, you do change children's lives. You change families' lives. Whether those kids are going home to mum and dad, gold standard of care, family reunification, or whether in the end, if that's not possible, they go to be adopted. You're creating a stability for that child. And um, I used to work for Chosen, and one of their key phrases is that children only heal in relationship. And it's true, if a child has been traumatized, they only heal in a relationship. The CASA advocates can form some of that relationship. So I love what we do and I've walked <laughs> it. But I think that's important, especially things. being a leader for an yeah. organization is that you've you've been through it. Like you said, you've walked it, right? You've that's been right. in those shoes. You know, I'm thinking for advocates, are there requirements that they have? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they go through a background check. Absolutely. I would expect that. But requirements in the sense that, well, let me give myself as an example. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any children. I don't know what it's like to have children. I have a dog. I have a four-legged son. <laughs> and right. that's about it. But let's say someone like myself 
was wanting to be an advocate. Maybe we have a heart for the community. Mm-hmm. That's what we want to do. Is there training available? What, you know, how can an advocate be trained per se and kind of learn how to be a good partner and, and, and build the relationship with a child? That's a great question, and we're very good at doing it. Okay. So, so yes, you could come and be an advocate for us. Uh, let's just use a case in point. Not having children is not a roadblock, and we have advocates from 21 all the way up the spectrum. So with children, with no children, um, that look different to each other, that have different orientations to each other. So what we do initially is, yes, we do a background check and a fingerprint check, and it's not just at the state level. It's a national level check. Okay. So we do that. We also provide 33 hours of initial training, which is pretty pretty hardcore training. It's intensive. It takes you through how to do court reports. It takes you through what to look for. Our interview process prior to you even being accepted onto that training will talk to you about where your biases may lie that you may not be open. You may not even realize until we have these conversations. So we have some pretty intensive interviews beforehand. About 20% there are thereabouts of people are not a good fit to be an advocate, so we're very careful. What we do now is release those wonderful people who had a heart for the community to other nonprofits where they may be a better fit. Because if you've got a heart for this, we're not really releasing right. you, but we know CASA is, you know, it's heavy sometimes um, emotionally with what you do and time wise. So we check all of those things. We want you to commit to staying with a child or family for at least the court case and they're in temporary conservatorship, which can be anything from 12 months upwards. Most of them at the moment are finishing around 16 to 18 months, but that doesn't necessarily happen to be the case. So 33 hours of basic training. And then after that is an hour a month. So another 12 hours of ongoing training through the year. But the biggest thing we give you is a member of staff. So when you become an advocate for us, you are assigned to what we call an advocate supervisor. um, And they also have team managers internally. So you can pick up the phone or contact them, text, message, email, whenever. Our supervisors will answer your call seven days a week. Literally, you never have to be alone with an issue. And that's huge. And they can only have up to 27 advocates each. And is this child in the foster care system already? Yes. Right. So yeah, who, we, we okay. come to the initial removal here, which is the 262, it's called. Okay. But they will have already become a ward of the state, in effect. So they're in temporary managing conservatorship of the state of Texas. So who is the advocate usually in contact with? The court. The, suppo- court. the okay. court gives the advocate the CASA, we need an advocate. The advocate is then connected to the child okay. and the children. But they will then work with CPS, the lawyers, the doctors, the schools, whomever, family, obviously, whomever is around and supporting that child, our advocate will be in touch with. But we are there for the children in this case, first and foremost. So they can be in direct contact. Maybe let's say that the child is a little older, might have a cell phone, maybe not. Absolutely, they can be in contact. They could, because... So I'm, again, pulling from my prior experiences interviewing uh, my good friend Hugh Farr from Big Brothers Big Sisters. Okay. Um, I know when he was talking I about, know Hugh. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a great gentleman. <laughs> They're good people. Uh, very good people. And you know when he was explaining what it's like to be a big brother or big sister, you know you're taking your little, as they call it, yeah. to a movie, to the zoo, right? Maybe you're we playing do all catch. Of that too. So that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm picturing. Is that maybe you? Is that what advocates are? 
you know, hopefully trying to do with these children as well, kind of build yes. that relationship? So we do, we do those things too. Our boundary is the child is in the foster care system, which may be different for big brothers and big sisters. Right. So we also go to court and then pro- put proposals in front of the judge. And I think that's what separates us as well. And also the length of time. I mean, we will ask you to remain with that child through the length of their case, whatever that may be. And I say 12 months is the minimum right now. 18 months is about average, but it can go longer. Oftentimes we find we do not make our advocates break connection once that child either goes home or is in a permanent placement. Some of our advocates and kids, even when they're not in the system anymore, will stay in touch. That's exactly what I was going to ask next. Yeah, was that, they are, stay do in they touch. stay in touch? Because that was the same question I had when I was interviewing Hugh, was that, because yeah. I can just imagine you're building this great relationship. And, then you walk. You're be, and having Right. Mm-mm. And so that's exactly what I, what I wanted to ask. And it's interesting sometimes because I think, you know, the foster adoptive family reunification, sometimes the adults there are like, we, we don't want anybody else now messing in our universe. You know, they're, they're usually so connected. I read a letter, actually, Blair sent me in a picture. I have a little note card from a couple of our advocates to their kids, their CASA kids. They are above and beyond. It's a fascinating thing. We, we were working with some other people on some marketing and branding language, and our advocates were in the room. And the stand in the gap phrase comes from an advocate. They understand the small things and the big things. You know, the small things, taking a birthday cake, being there. I was nearly in tears coming out of a kindergarten graduation and the advocate was the person there with the bloom for the child. There was nobody else there. Oh, wow. And then... They remember that at that age especially. Yeah, they, they were there and handed, handed the little one their bloom. And then the next week are going to court talking about what this little one has said, you know, I want to go home or, you know. And sometimes when they're that little, the children don't know what's best for them. But we still have to build those relationships and it's the trust. It's a trust that our advocates build with these children that make lifelong differences. It's not just in this moment. You know, earlier you talked about the different age range of advocates. Mm-hmm. And what it made me think of was typically people in that age range that are younger. When I say young, I don't mean just someone in their 20s or 30s. I mean all the way up to someone in their 40s and maybe early 50s that are still working. You know, a lot of times you think of retirees, they have a little more time, they do more volunteering. But with these advocates, I mean, from what I've seen and what you've explained, there's advocates that are younger, that are, they have full-time jobs already, if not more, and they're also being an advocate. So what is the the time commitment like? You know, is it a per month, per week? What is it like for someone who's maybe on the fence, really wants to help, but they feel like, well, I don't know if I can commit this time. So I'm going to talk to you from my personal experience. So I worked full-time and I had two children in high school, actually middle school and high school, and you are what you focus on. So Mm. it takes maybe 15 hours, 20 hours a month. You always have your staff back up. You always have advocate supervisors here. If If you can't get to a court hearing or you miss a visit or things like that, you always have somebody to fall back on. But it becomes doable. It sounds a lot, but when you're involved with these children, it it just fits in with your life. I, there's no other way to explain that. It's like I did my <laughs> master's degree last year over the last few years and I'm on the higher end of those allegedly young people. I think he changed it to early 50s just in case. Viewers, <laughs> just saying. You do find the time and it feels like a lot up front but I think what I would say to anybody considering this, 
is know there are people here. There are 818 advocates with Child Advocate San Antonio, all different ages and everything that we do. And they manage to do this and they do it brilliantly. The kids, the young people, all the way through, you know, they can be still in school, so they can be past 18, mm-hmm. the children that we serve, young people that we serve. It's worth every minute of it. It's, it definitely seems like it. It's better than binge watching Netflix, <laughs> as my daughter would tell me. <laughs> or you can share a series with, with that child, right? Yeah, maybe, that, that you can binge watch, watch together. There, there you go. go. <laughs> uh, something else I wanted to talk about, and, and we, we talked about a little bit before we started recording, was... You know, the way the media, and I'm going to involve Hollywood in this example, how they depict the system, right, you could say. And the movie I think of is Instant Family, which if the listeners know, it has Mark Wahlberg, which I am a fan of Mark Wahlberg. But in the movie, you know, you have this this couple who can't have a child and they want to have children. And so what they end up doing is they don't adopt, but they go to the court and they're able to foster this trio of children mm-hmm. you have uh, a younger girl um, a boy who's probably around middle school age and then you have a girl who's the teenager so of course they're the rebel she's usually the one who gives them the most trouble at least in the movie and of course over time it is a story it's hollywood right they develop that relationship they oh we love these children they become better parents right even mm-hmm. though they're just fostering and throughout the movie you get a few glimpses of the mom of these children who is, you know, has substance abuse issues. And I think there's a, a part of the movie where she misses a court date, right? Or she promises something to the older daughter and she can't come through. And of course, in the movie, the court system's trying to unify, which that I, I think is true. They're trying to reunify the children with the family. Um, and then, of course, because it's Hollywood, in the end, the mom can't take care of the children. She basically gives them up and... Mark Wahlberg and his and his wife are able to formally adopt the children, and of course, it's a nice little you know love story, I guess you could say. I, what I want you to explain is how maybe how that's wrong in the sense that that's not how all the cases are, right? I mean, in most mm-hmm. cases, we're trying to reunify, right, with the family because that is the best case. Gold standard of care. So children love their parents, and regardless of what that household has looked like, they still love their parents. The parents still love their kids, whether they can care for them or they can't care for them very well. Last year in Bear County, there were 48% of children reunified with, if not mom and dad, with extended family or what they call relative kinship placements. Um, so wider family, but within that family. A lot of the reasons gold standard of care is because culturally it's a normalcy for that child and they know they're connected some way to the, the people that are now raising them. The Hollywood structure of it most oftentimes sees the parents as the one in the end not being able to cope, not being able to be to step up to looking after the children well enough. So the fairy tale ending is, you know, they now live in a lovely home and have all the things they need and, you know, Nike sneakers. Kids don't really need Nike sneakers. Yeah, they they need to be with family where they can be. And I think there needs to be more focus put on that which is the reality of of the world we live in they want to be together i will say though about that that particular movie because now you've been talking about it's come back to me the teenage young lady in there plays a brilliant part she's been the caregiver for her younger brother Mm -hmm. and sister and she's so protective of them 
And there's a piece very early in the movie where she's over with her teenagers, but she's watching these prospective foster parents shop for the children they want to foster. And she actually says to them at one point, you take them, you don't need to take me as well, just look after them. And they refuse. That's very real. A lot of sibling groups, younger, the younger ones will be fostered, adopted, maybe sometimes even reunified, where the older child will not. That's heartbreaking to me. And I think we work very hard with our advocates about the whole sibling group because that older child so often has been the pseudo-mother or father or cooking for the kids or whichever they've needed to do in order to keep that family together. And you see actually some of that story even further play out in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually think that that young lady did and the writers did a pretty good job on her part. Depicting that. They did. But we need to get away from the fairy tale is children go live with other people. Mm-hmm. The fairy tale should be children go home. Right. And not only that, but just from speaking with you, Angela, like thinking of in that movie, the mother is depicted as, well, she uses drugs or alcohol. When, like you mentioned, a lot of cases, it's just neglect in the sense that this parent is or guardian is just working a lot. They have to provide for the family. And that's why they're, they're busy. That's why the neglect happens. Not so much that it's just because of substance abuse but it's more of the, the time right and they're yeah. they're just trying to they're trying to do best for their family yeah. and so i also think just from learning from you that that also doesn't accurately depict that story but of That's course true. that probably wouldn't make a good hollywood story well, i guess it wouldn't be say. very headlining yeah it, so. <laughs> exactly so going back to substance abuse real quick and i know we talked about this briefly before we started the podcast and i said to you i used to run an addiction agency alpha home for And my reason for going there, because I'm a foster child as well, was to reunify women with their children. Um, Female-based agency, not to say dad shouldn't have the children, but this is my experience. And some of the most impressive women I know to this day are the ones that get clean and sober and fight to get their kids back. And we we are going to do more education here at CASA. We do some already, but more education with our advocates about the possibility of that. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that's where children really want to be right. when it's safe to do so. And I'll always caveat it with that when the children can be cared for, when it's safe to do so. But lots and lots of people get clean and sober and live a mm-hmm. life of recovery and can raise their children. And, and I know before you know, when I was talking to Blair, you know, she mentioned that sometimes that's the jolt that that parent needs for that individual, you know, having right. their children getting taken away, maybe temporarily. Seeing that is what changes them and that leads to them getting clean and making a better life for not only themselves and their own health, but ultimately the children. So, I I, I mean, ultimately, I think that's that's the goal. And I think that's important for people to know that it's reunification that is most oftentimes the goal. You know, that's where they do best. They want to be around their family. It's always the goal until it can be proven not to be the case. So just be, I mean, it's in the yeah. Texas standards, it's, it's everywhere, it is always the goal. And I know oftentimes people don't understand that. They might not understand, well, if this kid was taken away for neglect, why on earth would you consider putting them back? But it's, you know, that is the driver. Now, earlier on in the conversation, you talked or you alluded to partnerships with other local organizations. Indeed. What are some, some of those partnerships around San Antonio that wow. well, you kind we, of work with? We work with all the child placement agencies because oftentimes our children are with, you know, family tapestry. They may be with SJRC, 
you know, which is belong now is just coming and, and various of the agencies around the city. Um, Clarity Child Guidance is another partner. Chosen is another partner. The court system, obviously, obviously CPS. Um, I actually was touring the Family Violence Prevention Center, um, last week. Child Safer, another one. Um, even the founda- the foundations themselves, so Krankowski Foundation, for example, are putting in a network in place that allows us to track children and families across all the nonprofits they've touched. We're going to be part of that collaborative. We're part of a collaborative with the Ecumenical Center around mental health needs and how to advocate generally in the city, not just for our piece of the world. I literally sent an email this morning um, connecting the San Antonio doulas to the domestic women's shelter because oftentimes they'll come in pregnant or just having had a child and they can support each other. So sometimes it's not even the connection with CASA. It's if we know these two agencies should be together, we can do that too. Well, I think it's so important. I think it's so important. The point has been made to me on prior episodes and, and my other talk show series too that sometimes organizations and, and businesses, uh, depending on what topic you're, you're discussing, they work in silos sometimes, yeah. you know, but I think it's so important for organizations, especially nonprofit organizations, especially with what you're doing, to partner together and be more of a collaborative. For me, it's, a, it's not about who does it even, it's about serving that child and that family with excellence. If that's not our lane, you know, if that's not our piece of the puzzle, then let's connect it to the other pieces of the puzzle and make sure that even post-reunification, you know, Chosen maybe works with them then, or if it has been a case of neglect, that they're connected with SA Hope, for instance. So, or food banks, or whatever they need to stay connected as a family so recidivism of that child doesn't come back. So let's try and solve those problems that the family have been facing as well to allow the child to stay put when they're reunified so you don't see that loop coming back in the system but for me it's all about who can serve these families well and these children well and if we do that all together then the community gets better you start breaking generations of the the cycles that happen within generations you start to break those well and if you can break them properly and that takes all of us takes every man, woman and beast it takes all of us to make that happen for a family let's do it and I know one way that you can at least help break the cycle is um, is education. Absolutely. And one partnership. Oh, UTSA. That's exactly is what that I was going to bring going? up. So of that's course. where I'm going. Sorry, Peggy. Amy. I've, got, <laughs> I've, I've gotten pretty good at making the the transitions. Good here. job. So one of those one of those ways that you can break the cycle is through education. Absolutely. And one of the partnerships that stood out recently was the partnership with UTSA, mm-hmm. Texas A&M, San Antonio, and Alamo colleges. I think yeah. it was the I had it written down the Bear County Fostering Educational Success Project. Yes. Which I think is fantastic. It's I just phenomenal. read the story this morning. I think one thing that stood out in the story to me was that right now 4%, and I don't know where these studies are taking place, but 4% is what they said of the children in a foster care system go off and, and get a degree. So it seems like a project like this can can help that. Another thing that stood out in the article to me was that just at UTSA, I think they said about 125 students there had been in the foster care system Mm -hmm. and that through the project I think it was even increased by 90 I think and that's just one university you know scale that to the different universities not only in San Antonio but in Texas and in the country you're talking of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of kids 
you know, that are that are attending schools. And if we can increase that, you can get that 4% a lot higher. It all goes to helping break the cycle. It does. So can you explain a little bit about that project? Yes. Um, very remiss of me not to talk about UTSA. <laughs> it's a great project. Um, it's actually only in its, I think it's its second or third year, maybe second year for the, pi- the pilot was last year. Um, it's amazing. So children that have experienced a foster system will get help with college expenses. The trick is getting them through high school as well. So we need these kids to get through high school and graduate with enough of a GPA to go into the college system. And then in the college system, having that wraparound care and support for them. So they have counselors, we can get them food, we can get them books, all the things, as well as the literal education itself. So the Klein project is their earlier high school project. We recently ran, we recently had a graduation here for that, which was super exciting. Um, And Seton Home houses young mothers and babies, and there are young mothers and babies here, so I got to hold babies, (laughs) so I was all about it. Um, But the fact that there's focus on these children and the support they need, because I know with my children, if my kids came home and hadn't done the homework, you know, there was trouble until (laughs) that homework got done and, you know, the grades were good. Our children in the system don't have those people really in their corner. You know, or if the school called me and I had to go in, you're there on the spot to go in. I think sometimes the schools can help us by supporting children who are changing schools often because placements of foster children change three times in the period they're in the temporary conservatorship now up to six times if there's higher acuity needs for the kids and the schools can step in and instead of labeling oh they're a troublemaker because they're a foster child working with that child to encourage them to stay in school and everything else the UTSA partnership and BCFES all all of that mouthful (laughs) the the Bear County and education success initiative are very focused on making that happen, on getting the kids the backpacks they need, on getting them supplies they need, on providing them with mentors. That's why CASA are involved. All Alamo colleges. It's just fabulous. And it's so exciting that they're putting the the numbers into that. And to your point, so Miss Peggy Amy, who's the First Lady of UTSA Mm -hmm. here, is now on the board of Texas CASA and is working with the legislator where the the finance for this has now been written into SB1 and House Bill 1, which is amazing, it's in the budget, um, to get that wider across Texas and then to try and push that out into the nation. So nice early thinking from you there, sir. That is the plan for sure because the impact will be huge. Absolutely. It will be huge. And it's exciting to see that just because, well, I'm an alumni of UTSA, so seeing that is... it's really nice. Uh, it's refreshing that they're thinking of that as well. The yeah, campus support is amazing. Right. Not been there. Really, it's cool. And, and I know President Amy has done a lot there since yes. he took over. And, and I did read in the article that his wife, uh, yeah, she Peggy she has was been a awesome. driver behind some of this. Obviously, with his you know approval, and mm-hmm. um, but she has very much been the driver of this and setting up the organization. And big shout out to Erica Buford because she actually runs it from the CEO point of view. Or okay. She's a program director, but basically, she runs that runs that project with the support of Peggy. But she has her own team. It's growing, <laughs> and cash are involved. And the college docket, the courts are also involved in that. Kind of winding down the the interview here, what are the challenges that CASA faces going forward and how can the community help? Advocates. And I'm sat next to my mission advancement director, so funding as well. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, we need volunteer advocates. Um, obviously, funding is essential to keep us moving forward. You know, we are serving, last year we served around 67% of the children that came into the system. We need to be serving more. What that means is 33% of children did not have the benefit of having an advocate. They did not have the benefit of somebody to stand up for them in court, to listen to them, to read them a story over the phone at night when they've just moved to a new place. They didn't have that. And that's why the volunteer advocates are the biggest deal for me. However, we can't support volunteer advocates if we don't have funding. So the right. normal non-profit cry. I will say this year, um, huge shout out Harvey Nadram has helped us enormously. The Holtz family have helped us enormously. The Rotary are building a playground on the back so children can come here and be secure and safe with their advocates. So we've been blessed, but we still have to run every day and we still need that support and funding. And we need people to be talking about child advocates in the community at large. Invite us to your events. I'll, I'll come talk to anybody. Me and Blair just roll, dust us <laughs> off and roll us out and we'll, we'll come talk at events and really start to educate people on what we do and what is needed. And um, speaking of events, I mean, what kind of events are, are, are being held? Oh, and- what a timely question. okay so yes we have our big event in person 1st of October at the Redberry Estates it is our our annual fundraiser although last year was a little bit different Um, we are going to have a beautiful night you are going to have be wined and dined and it's a lake and it's all gorgeous and we have a casino but the thing that makes this different is there's something called a gallery of hope so we will have images of our children and advocates um, who are now out of the system and have been placed in a permanent place. We will have voice that goes with that. We'll have videos that go with that. And it's such a moving evening that you get to understand really what happens and you hear the voices of these people. You get to have a lot of fun as well because, I mean, hey, why not? Um, what we do is serious, but sometimes you have to have fun. But it's a really beautiful thing to hear it from the voices of our advocates and from our children that we serve. So it's going to be a great night. 1st of October, 6 p.m. till 11 p.m. It's on the lake. We have a boat going out. We have a celebrity captain of the boat. It's going to be a lot of fun. But you're going to learn a lot too. And it's a place to give to where you know that you will be helping children. What better thing could you do? (laughs) Now, for someone who's ready to at least apply to become an advocate, what is the first step for them? Go online to the website. So kasha-satx.org. We also have a Facebook page. We have LinkedIn. We have Instagram. We have Twitter. But if you go online, there is an application online. Um, Much more information about how old you have to be. It's over 21 to be an advocate and all the information you will need there. The biggest thing to remember is we are always here to support you. Well, last question for you. Yes, sir. You've been in San Antonio for 10 years. You've lived in different places. You've lived in a different country. I have. But what do you think in those 10 years, what have you learned? Um, what do you think it means to be a true San Antonian? To be a true San Antonio, I think it's Antonian. I think it means community. There is a deep pride in the people I've met here that are San Antonio, born and bred for generations. That That's incredible. I sat with two people the other day that were having conversations that were back two or three generations, which was incredible, and people stay here through that time. I think for me, as an adopted San Antonian, Mm -hmm. and a proud one, it's been embraced in that community, in that culture. 
This is a very philanthropic community. We are blessed with the leaders we have in this community to care for those that are often forgotten. So on the serious side, it has that. On the fun side, I mean, we have Fiesta. I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> I've been missing that. And um, we have the River Walk. It's one of the most you know, tourist visited places. Many of my friends from the UK seem to have visited me more here than when I lived in Houston. No disrespect, Houston. <laughs> they do seem to have been in San Antonio more. And I like the fact that it is very multicultural. I think the military bases play into that. Um, there are a lot of Brits here. I'm also married to a South African. There are a lot of South Africans here too. <laughs> so it's a very multicultural city, which is lovely, but it still holds tight to those familial structure roots. So I think it's a combination of everything. Well, Angela, I appreciate your time. Um, Thank you. For the listeners, I know she mentioned earlier the website. It was Casa dash or hyphen satx.org facebook instagram twitter on facebook i believe it's at child advocate san antonio you can of course search child advocate san antonio it'll come up instagram it's at casa that's c-a-s-a dot s-a-t-x and on twitter it's casa again c-a-s-a underscore s-a-t-x so definitely give them a follow and don't forget linkedin and linkedin so it's linkedin.com and that's a slash company slash casa so perfect so definitely give them a follow stay updated and keep up to date on any events coming up especially the one on October 1st, 1st October. at the Redberry State so most definitely but Angela again it's been a pleasure I appreciate your time and I appreciate you sharing the story of Casa and what you guys are doing for the community because it's it's fantastic thank you so much and thank you for your time and for everybody that's listening thank you That's going to wrap up my interview with Angela White, President and CEO of CASA. I really hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast on your preferred listening platform. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I also ask that you leave a rate and review if you haven't already. If you want to keep up with the show and our other talk show series, SA Talk, please give us a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at SAPod network. If you're looking to support the podcast, please click on the link in bio on any of our social media sites, click support monthly, and you'll be able to support the podcast for as little as 99 cents. If you have questions about advertising or partnership opportunities, please reach out to me at Zachary at sapodnetwork.com. And that's Zachary, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y at sapodnetwork.com. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Searching for San Antonio. I really appreciate you guys. Have a wonderful week and viva San Antonio.